I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Guys, well, uh, we are here for another recording that uh, I'm very much. I was I was anticipating for at least the last 24 hours. Um, this recording was booked uh, not long ago, and I kind of I'm glad that it was booked when it was booked because there's kind of a tight turnaround here, and the reason for that is because I want to get this episode out on the day that it's dropping, which is today, Valentine's Day, and the reason for that is because today is the day that a very interesting book is hitting the shelves called Real Food for Fertility. And uh, we, we have the honor of being joined by the co-authors of said book. And uh, for you guys, I'll give you a little bit of context. I had the pleasure of speaking with, uh, with Lisa, who we are here with today, uh, on Turn Me On, the podcast that I host with Bridie. Um, and it it was the second time we had Lisa on the show, one of my favorite guests of all time. Um, and Lisa is like a fertility awareness expert. Um, every time I've spoken with her, my mind was like blown wide open. And I thought this would make a really great conversation for the podcast for a number of reasons. But one of them is because in our conversation that we had um, with Lisa last when we recorded it, uh, which that episode is dropping today on Turn Me On as well. So if if you love if you love babies and fertility and and uh, nutrition and all those things, and who doesn't really? I, really, yeah. um, go listen to that episode as well. Double but uh, in that conversation, I learned more about your sperm, Taylor, than I than and I felt like I had a pretty pretty good grasp on your sperm mm-hmm. uh, prior to that conversation, mm-hmm. and I learned so much about your sperm that I was blown away, and I said. We got to get them both on Sick Boy so we can we can unpack not just your sperm, but uh, many very fascinating things that have to do with uh, that have to do with making babies. Um, so for a little intro here, Lisa Hendrickson Jack is a certified fertility awareness educator and holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control, conception and monitoring overall health. Mm. She is the author of three best-selling books, The Fifth Vital Sign, uh, The Fertility Awareness Mastery Charting Workbook, and her most recent book, which we're going to be talking about today, Real Food for Fertility, which she co-authored with Lily Nichols. And we are also joined with Lily today as well, who is uh, a registered dietitian and nutritionist and certified diabetes educator, and she has devoted her career to researching real food nutrition for pregnancy and gestational diabetes. We cannot stop talking about 
pregnancy and 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 all things baby. There's literally baby blocks on the table here. Taylor just brought a a, a young little tot into the world recently and coming up soon in a couple of weeks another one's coming another one's coming so we're just obsessed with babies lately babies are hot topic uh so nice to have you guys on the show today thank you so much for joining us and uh and please just for a little bit of context for the three of us and for our listeners um give us just you know your own uh version of an introduction give us a little bit more insight into uh, who you guys are lily do you want to jump in you jump in you were introduced first i'll take it after you okay Um, Well, thank you for having us and for such a lovely, warm uh, introduction. Uh, So, I mean, I could talk a little bit about how I got into this work. I mean, Mm -hmm. um, if I try to do the brief story, I discovered fertility awareness when I was in my late teens. And I don't I I don't think it was an accident. I think that it was it was meant to be. Um, I had been put on the pill. I actually tried to put myself on the pill as a young teenager because I had extremely painful periods. My periods are really heavy. And I was really active. I was danced ballet. And I always say, like, who wants to have really heavy periods when you're in a leotard? That uh, doesn't really work. Um, and, and at the time, the only way I knew how to handle it was the pill because that was that was it. So I went to my doctor and was like, can I go on the pill so that I can you know, deal with this? But I wasn't using it for birth control. So when being a, a child, basically, like, you know, my periods improved, my so-called periods, my pill periods improved. And so I would come off of the pill every now and then thinking I was fixed. And every time I did, my real periods would come back worse. So um, this led me to come off the pill when I actually needed birth control, because I really wanted to try to figure out what was actually wrong with my cycles. And it was during that time that I discovered fertility awareness. And the gist of it is that we're not fertile every single day as women. There's a, a small window of time, and we can learn to identify that we can use that information as a form of birth control where we don't need to be on hormones if that's not something that agrees with us or if that's not the choice that we want to make. And it's highly effective. And we can also then optimize our chances of conception and learn a whole lot about our bodies by tracking our cycles because our menstrual cycles are a reflection of our overall health. So that's a little bit about me. And then Lily and I have been friends for a long time. We actually, I, when I wrote my first book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Lily and I were book buddies as she was writing her book, Real Food for Pregnancy. And somehow, um, you know, our work has a lot of overlap. And we decided that we wanted to embark on this incredible um, journey together to write Real Food for Fertility uh, because it really is our, our work complements each other so well that we thought it would be uh, just a really great opportunity to share that together. Cool. And then, uh, yeah, my work as a dietitian has really centered around nutrition in the childbearing years. And I guess as I kind of straddle this world of like the natural health sphere, always kind of leaning towards that end, but then having my foot in this like heavily uh, clinical mm, controlled sort of um, dietary guidelines kind of world. And what I found from all of my work is that the dietary guidelines we have and the Canadian ones are very similar to the ones from the US, really based on old information. Um, It often doesn't work very well in practice. And where my work is focused is on looking into where are the gaps in those guidelines and how can we improve upon them? Like what new research has come out in the last 10, 15, 20, 30 years? Because our guidelines really haven't shifted all that much in the past couple of decades. And how can we improve 
um, pregnancy outcomes. So for example, my first book was on gestational diabetes. It was looking at, um, you know, in practice, I had used the standard dietary guidelines for gestational diabetes, and that didn't work very well for controlling my client's blood sugar levels. And that can lead to all sorts of adverse outcomes, both for mom and baby. Um, and in my clinical work, I developed like a, a different approach that worked much better. We were able to reduce um, chances that a woman required insulin by like 50%, reduce rates of adverse consequences on the baby quite significantly. And so I published that book, not really thinking it would do much. Um, and it made a pretty large splash in the nutrition world. And then everyone's like, well, what about general pregnancy? Mm. Um, and after going through my first pregnancy and experiencing just how uh, lacking the information is there's very little focus on prevention. And maybe you've experienced this with, um, your partners going through pregnancy where they're not really given a whole lot of information that's about like preventing complications or preventing issues. It's like you show up to your appointments and they're always trying to test you and check you for certain issues, but there's no focus on how can we prevent them from developing in the first place. Mm -hmm. And there's quite a bit we can do with nutrition, Hence my second book, Real Food for Pregnancy. And then for this project together, I mean, ultimately, well, there's a lot of reasons we wrote this, but many complications with mom and baby actually have their origins all the way back in the preconception phase. We need to optimize both egg and sperm quality preconception. We need to make sure a woman's cycles are in a really good place leading up to conception because the endometrial lining of the uterus, what is shed during each menstrual cycle, is the first home for that developing embryo. And a lot of pregnancy complications actually have their origins in issues with the endometrium and issues with the placenta properly forming in that endometrium. So we need to like rewind the clock, ideally, if you have the luxury of planning for pregnancy, improve both partners' health ahead of time to a, improve their journey to pregnancy, hopefully make it less complicated and stressful, but also set them up for a healthy pregnancy ahead mm. um, instead of just zeroing in on let's get you pregnant as quickly as possible. It's like, let's do this a little more holistically and mm. planned so we have a healthier outcome at the end. Mm -hmm. So I've got, I've got a, I've just got like a, I've got to try to throttle the like spew of, of questions <laughs> that are coming to mind here. Cause I, I, by my personal experience, I've, I, my partner and I had difficulty um, getting pregnant. We went through IVF. I have a, a I have a beautiful photo uh, uh, that is the embryo of my daughter, which is what I, I'm seeing something similar. That's right there in, in your background there. Yeah. Um, and that's Zaya back there. How did you, how did, <laughs> how did you get that? That one isn't Zaya. Um, and, and so like, there's a, there's, I've got a lot of questions and, and my partner was like really obsessed with, with, uh, with her diet and nutrition and Ooh. supplementation and everything in that process, especially, especially when we were having trouble, um, pre IVF and trying to, you know, figure out like how, how can, how can she adapt to, um, you know, to optimize for conception. Um, but one of the first, when it things, all boiled down to just the fact that you have weird shaped sperm. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, may, well, maybe it, thunk it. it actually ended up, it actually ended up being kind of dialed into like unexplained infertility, but, um, and, and there, anyway, I'll, I'll, I'll get into more of that later, but <laughs> one of what kind of seemingly simple quote unquote, um, questions I have is, um, from something you said, Lisa, about natural, um, um, like tracking your cycle, tracking your menstrual cycle in the, in, in, in the process of uh, 
of, I can't remember if this was after my wife was pregnant or not, but she said something to me about, she was reading a book called, uh, called Growing Up Bebe. It was um, a, a, an American woman who had moved who had moved to France and she was basically kind of expounding on like all the differences that she saw in like raising a baby in, in France. And, and one of the things that she mentioned was how enormously common it was in France to be tracking your menstrual cycle and to be using the tracking of your menstrual cycle as like the primary form of birth control for, for like the vast majority of people. Um, and how, and how, highly successful that is when you know when you're when you know when you're ovulating how accurately you can you can use that as contraception um rather than using something like the pill or 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 an iud or something like that can you like speak more about um ovulation and using that as a form of of contraception yeah of course that's really interesting i don't know that i knew that that was a specific thing in france so now you've got my interest peaked and i'm gonna have to look into that and uh, well, so to get into it, I mean, like I mentioned in my own experience, I was taught like most women that you can get pregnant on every day of the cycle. I remember my junior high class, they were like, there's no safe days, like period or not, doesn't matter. And so <laughs> like most women, I came out of that thinking that like just being terrified all the time. And so when I, I mentioned that I was on the pill before I was sexually active. And so this is my logic. I don't know if any, like, I don't know if I'm just a weirdo, but I'll just you know, my logic was that because I was scared of getting pregnant at any time, when I was on the pill, not for birth control, sometimes I would miss a pill and maybe take it at the wrong time or like take it in the evening because I forgot to take it in the morning. So I always thought that then there was this possibility that I could be on the pill, get pregnant. And sometimes I would do like two packs in a row so I wouldn't get a pill bleed in the middle. So I actually thought that there could be this chance that I could be pregnant. I wouldn't know. <laughs> so that's the level of terror. So then I decided I didn't want to be on the pill because that was scarier to me. Being pregnant and not knowing it was scarier to me. So I wanted to be off the pill. And so it was around that time that I discovered fertility awareness. So what I learned is that instead of this lie that you can get pregnant all the time, it's actually men that are fertile all the time. So when a man goes through puberty, he's the one that makes sperm every day until well, until, until, because men don't have uh, like an andropause, like we have a menopause mm -hmm. in the same sense. Uh, and so as women, there's only this six day window um, from a scientific perspective where pregnancy is possible. So when you track your cycle, if I take you through what a typical cycle looks like, um, you know, the first day of your menstrual period is the first day of the cycle. And so once the period starts wrapping up, we tend to have a few what we would call dry days in the fertility awareness world before we start to see our cervical mucus. So cervical mucus is like this clear, stretchy, raw egg white type uh, excretion. So, I mean, we're, we're getting into it, right? TMI. What day is TMI Wednesdays? <laughs> um, but, I'm, fam uh, I'm familiar. Yes, I'm exactly. Familiar. Uh, and so it can look like that. It can look like creamy white hand lotion. And as women, we produce this in response to the rising estrogen levels that we are producing as we approach ovulation. So our bodies are designed in this really interesting way where we produce this mucus before ovulation and it can keep the sperm alive for up to five days. So this cervical mucus is a similar pH to your seminal fluid. So it's like a home away from home, if you will. <laughs> the sperm can survive in there up to five days. It has these really interesting qualities. It can allow for rapid sperm transport into the reproductive tract. It actually can screen out those hammerheads, as you were mm -hmm. saying. So That's when so wild. 
Well, and that's a whole conversation. The majority of sperm that even the healthiest man produces are actually of poor morphology. And so our cervical fluid actually captures some of those malformed sperm and and, and filters it out so that really only the best sperm are getting through. So our body, it's it's like a whole thing. It's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So then as we approach ovulation, we make this mucus. And it's really during that time that we can conceive. You know, the mucus changes the pH of our vagina. It's like a whole situation. And then after ovulation, our progesterone skyrockets and the progesterone shuts down the mucus production in a typical healthy cycle. And so and then once we've ovulated, if the egg is not fertilized, it actually disintegrates within about 12 to 24 hours. So this is the information that was missing from the junior high sex ed curriculum, because once we've confirmed ovulation, after, you know, in that second part of the cycle, pregnancy is not possible at all because without an egg, there's no pregnancy at all. Right. So when the and and in, in the book, we talk about the evidence based uh, because this is not just some like it's like this is not just your grandma's rhythm method. Right. Like we can get into to some of those differences between the rhythm method if you want to. But often that's what people think of when they hear of cycle tracking. They think that we're going to pick a day or we're going to you know look at our past cycles and kind of guesstimate when this is happening. And that's kind of what the rhythm method is. It's like more of a calculation. Whereas modern fertility awareness based methods are looking at a day to day uh, we're looking at the biomarkers, we're looking at the mucus, we're looking at basal body temperature. Each day, at the end of the day, we can identify if it's a fertile day or not. And so we're looking at the evidence-based ways of using what we would call the symptothermal method, looking mm-hmm. at the symptoms and the temperature together. And interestingly, for anyone who's listening who's like never heard of this, or it sounds really weird, or <laughs> it's totally out of context, you know, these methods have been found to be upwards of 99.4% effective when used correctly, when we are mm. identifying that fertile window and avoiding unprotected sex during that time. How, so how, the French how, women are onto something. How well can a person do that on their own? Because when I hear you yeah. talk about that, it makes me think like, well, I know that like Garmin has a built-in device for cycle tracking on their watch, but like I've always wondered like how accurate those things are. Um, how well can someone do that? track their cycle on it, their own. Yeah, because it does sound, it does, like, when you when you lay it out that way, uh, Lisa, it does sound like when you say, like, we can, it almost sounds like, well, th- I mean, you know, this is this is very, uh, very, like, labor-intensive, and they, and when I say we, it's like, you know, it's a whole medical prof- team of professionals, but, but I think you're actually speaking to something that, like, anybody can do from the comfort of their own home if they have the tools necessary to be able to track these things. And, and, and by tools, I don't mean uh, instruments. I mean literally, like, the, you know, the information and the and the knowledge of the things to be looking for or the tools like ovulation strips right well yeah and you raise i think one of the most common issues you know which is is this too hard right and so one of the things i'm often saying to women is because this is often a response that they'll get from their doctors like if if a woman's like okay i learned about cycle tracking and i'm going to go to my doctor and and ask permission, which we don't need to do, to come off the pill. And then the doctor is going to say, well, you know, it's not going to work. It's too hard and all that kind of stuff. So what I always say about it is that, you know, no one is forcing anyone to track their cycle, first of all. So Hmm. women self-select. When I'm, you know, even when you release this episode, some women who are listening are going to be resonating with this and really curious about it and are going to want to learn more and they're going to look into it. And others are going to be like, this isn't for me. So I think that that's the first thing where no one's forcing anyone to do this. You know, this is an option. And so from my perspective, I think that 
if we can understand that it's a legitimate method, that it's evidence based, that it's highly effective when done correctly, then, you know, in my perfect world, it would be presented as an option of birth control you know, alongside the other commonly known options. So that's the first thing. You know, the second thing is that, yes, it is a different kind of method. So the way that I talk about birth control, uh, and I don't know that I've heard other people talk about this way, is that when you're using a pill or an IUD or something like that, you're making your body resistant to sperm. So this is what you're doing. So you're making your body resistant to sperm in the sense that if you're on the pill, you know, it's preventing you from ovulating. If you're using the IUD, uh, similar thing. And it's also making, you know, the endometrium not being receptive to the, for, like, so there's, there's all these things that are basically making your body so that, you know, you have a, you have a goalie in place and the sperm can't just do it, what it's thing. And from that perspective, then you may have to change your behavior to some degree. Like if you have to take a pill, you have to take the pill. So you have to change your behavior, but you don't necessarily have to change your behavior to make it to work in a significant way. So with fertility awareness-based methods, they're entirely user-dependent methods. So it's entirely about you changing your behavior. And so you need to know when to do that, how to do that. You have to develop those skills. So with that being said, of course, there's more room for error there. And my recommendation for anybody who looks into this and actually is is quite serious about using it, I recommend considering working with an instructor, choosing a specific fertility awareness-based method, and just taking the time to learn. So like when I learned to drive a standard car, you know, I had to take time to learn it, you know, so it's the same kind of thing. Um, I wouldn't recommend for someone just to listen to this podcast and then jump on (laughs) the train and start, you know, using the method that way. But I would certainly... Um, keep that in mind. And and, and the devices is a whole other conversation. So personally, I don't recommend using a device as your primary method of birth control. Uh, And that's because I'm a bit biased. I've been doing this for a long time. And, you know, at the end of the day, your app doesn't know what's in your panties. You know, do you have mucus or not? You know, the app doesn't know. So I think that it's it's important for someone who's serious about this to, to really consider um, working with someone just so that they can be clear on everything so they can take the time allotted. Uh, and then that really helps to improve efficacy, because when we look at the research, the highest efficacy, there's a study um, that was published in 2007, and it was... Um, they looked at the symptothermal method. And in that study, they taught the participants a specific method. They had trained teachers instruct them on what to do. They were following the rules. And that doesn't happen when you just download an app or when you just listen to a podcast. So mm. that's what I would say about that. For anybody who is curious about uh, any of that stuff, I said earlier, the fifth vital sign is uh, one of Lisa's books. And uh, you can see the image there if you're curious about uh, checking in on that kind of stuff. I know that uh, I haven't read it, but Bridie got it and was like, you know, it was like it changed her whole paradigm, uh, you know, around around that that side of her life. Um, I, I'm curious, Lily, just about, you know, the work that, that you do and, and what you've contributed to the book, especially from like a nutritional standpoint. Um, you know, I know that I know that uh, improving nutritional intake before getting pregnant has like a you know much greater impact on on pregnancy outcomes but that term like improving your nutrition it it's it's a very you know it's a very broad statement uh can mean different things to to many different people so could you maybe like give us a little bit of a uh insight into you know what are what are some of the key kind of improvements people can make to their nutrition when specifically considering you know trying to trying to conceive a baby 
Yeah, well, great question. And I think um, I think something unique about our approach is that we talk about both both partners. Almost all the fertility resources are just focused on the woman mm. herself mm-hmm. and not talking about the man. And uh, I would say the good news is that pretty much, I would say 99% of the advice that's going to help improve female fertility has carryover for male fertility as well. So nobody needs mm. to be cooking like separate meals or anything like that. Um, there's a couple different angles you can take on the, um, you know, improving, improving nutrient levels or improving nutrient stores, um, or preparing the body for pregnancy. You can take it from the angle of like which macronutrients we're consuming our fat carbohydrates and protein and the ratios of those and how all of those play into things like hormone production menstrual cycle regularity, egg quality, sperm quality, and whatnot. You can take it from the micronutrient angle, your vitamins and minerals, and looking at it from which foods are the most nutrient dense, have the most like nutritional bang for their buck. Um, or you can even look at, at it from the angle of like, how do we improve um, some like general health baselines that will have carryover for our hormone levels? Like how do we improve blood sugar balance and um, oxidative stress and inflammation and whichever angle you take it from. And we, we kind of take it from all of them in the book, you end up at the same place, which is emphasizing protein rich foods. Our protein rich foods are the ones that are the most nutrient dense, have the highest amounts of vitamins and minerals per like gram weight of food. So our protein rich foods from the widest variety of sources, animal and plant, and really prioritizing your protein intake, I would say above all else for all your other macronutrients, because that tends to be the one that is the uh, most likely people are going to under consume is protein, despite all these weirdo articles in the media claiming otherwise. I know there was one that recently came out from Vox that we're all eating too much protein. We're only all eating, quote, too much protein because our dietary guidelines for protein are set at like a very bare minimum, like basement level to prevent overt protein deficiency, but they're not Mm. set at a level for optimal health, for optimal hormone balance, for optimal egg quality, for optimal blood sugar balance. Mm. Um, So prioritizing your protein rich foods, animal and plant both um, will go a really long way. And then looking at the quality of fat that you're consuming is another really important one. Um, People, I think, sometimes think of fats in terms of like unsaturated or saturated and one is good and one is bad. And it's really not so simple. And also that logic should kind of be flipped on its head, arguably. Um, When we look at the way in which we consume fat as a modern society, it's very, very different from 100, 200, 300 and beyond years ago. So once upon a time, we were consuming fat from whatever was naturally occurring in our foods. And if there was a lot in certain foods, we would like extract it or render it out and then use that for cooking. So you're in Canada. Think about your long, long winters. Probably one of the primary fat sources was actually animal foods because you can't grow plants for half the year. Um, So you would probably have some sort of an animal harvest and then you would render the fat from that animal. If anybody has ever had a cow share, pig share, something like that, and you get all the parts of the animal 
there's a ton of fat. I mean, there's so much mm. fat left over that you have fat to make soap and candles and everything, yeah. right? Um, nowadays, we are we have found a way to extract fat from seeds um, and corn and soy. I mean, take a kernel of corn off the cup and squeeze it and see how much oil you get out of it, right? Like we couldn't extract oil from these seed crops, at least in large quantities, until we had developed all sorts of crazy machinery and industrial processes. And now vegetable oils, seed oils make up the majority of the fat intake for, you know, westernized society. And we're told that it's good for us. And yet these fats are not very good for us, actually. They're not very stable. They go rancid, they oxidize, and then they set off all sorts of inflammatory reactions in our body when they are overconsumed. I don't think like a tiny bit is going to do anybody any harm, but the way that we have thought about fat collectively as a society is just like completely mm. warped um, mm -hmm. towards what benefits the food industry, really. So quality fats, and that includes fats, plant and animal, but the least processed possible um, and from, you know, quality sources. So animal fats, lard, tallow, butter, ghee, totally fine. Um, fats that can withstand high heat cooking without getting damaged would be those ones, plus some of the tropical oils like coconut oil. And then um, plant oils that have been extracted with like a cold extraction method, like extra virgin olive oil or avocado oil, macadamia nut oil for salads and such. Those are all healthy. But the high intake of, you know, soybean oil, corn oil, canola oil is really not doing us um, any favors. Mm. So those would be like a couple places to focus. And one more would be getting in as much fresh uh, produce as you can. Easier said than done when you're in a northern climate. And of course, there's going to be like differences in different parts of the world. But we can't ignore the fact that having you know, fiber and antioxidants um, from all these brightly colored fruits and vegetables also really overall shows benefits for uh, fertility when you're looking at the research. Um, I have a uh, I have a very uh, a very curious question um, about proteins uh, a protein question and this might be this might be uh, not, not out of your wheelhouse but maybe not something that you've heard about or looked into at all but something that I was curious to ask you and knowing that we are going to talk today I I wrote my partner um, before I was like hey do you have any questions I'm going to be sitting down for a conversation do you have any questions that you want to ask and so um, so uh, just a, a bit of context, uh, I did IVF to have my first uh, daughter and um, and then we we were actually in the process of like taking some drugs to to do an embryo transfer the next month. And then in that month, we got pregnant naturally after having like a long time of of of, of fertility issues. Wow. And um, and so. You know, and then we talked to the fertility clinic and they're like, yeah, that's crazy how that seems to happen. You know, people have fertility issues. They have a baby via, via IVF or IUI or something like that. And then all of a sudden, for some reason, their fertility, it, 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 it starts working in a different way and then whatever. And so because we were undetermined um, or uh, undetermined infertility issue, we don't know what, we don't know what's what, we don't know what, what, what changed or what happened. But something that my partner was really curious about was that she was looking into all these nutrition things uh, about how to optimize. And she came across an old, like a really old study, like from like, I think it was like the sixties or the early seventies about pea protein and how they had used pea protein at, um, in this study to try as a contraceptive, like high concentration pea protein had been shown in, in mice 
to uh, to act as a form of contraception. And it was like a single study, and then there's really no more research on it over that. But then, you know, my my partner's vegan, and pea protein is in like everything that she eats. And so she was like, she was like, oh, it's kind of crazy how pea protein is seems to have like made this huge influx into into um, like Western diets because of the rise in vegetarianism and veganism. It's you know, far more popular than it used to be. And so it was just kind of like a head scratcher, like, huh, I wonder if that ever played a role. Have you, have you ever heard of that? Or is that just like, am I bringing something out of the blue on pea protein? The pea protein thing, I'll be honest, is, is new to me. Um, I have a couple of possible ideas behind it. Like, you know, it's a, it's a rat study, right? An animal study. The thing with plant proteins is they don't contain, um, a complete, like amino acid balance. And so it's possible that if they were, they didn't really plan out the animal feed in a way that they're making sure it had a balance of all the amino acids, that there is a deficiency in one that Mm. could mess stuff up. You really do need like the totality of amino acids for like optimal uh, hormone balance and fertility. That is one possibility that comes to mind. The other possibility is, you know, many plant foods have phytoestrogens in them. I don't know if the concentration of, you know, phytoestrogens in that particular pea protein was so high that it was interfering with normal, like, estrogen signaling in the body is my other Mm. idea. And then, um, you know, what was the other one that I was going to say? I think I think those two were the were the main ones that came to mind for the like rats in particular. As for like, you know, population wide vegetarian and veganism, I don't know that I'd point the finger specifically at like pea protein as being problematic. But um, again, when it comes down to the amino acid balance, um, we do see greater fertility challenges in uh, women following a vegetarian and vegan diet. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of that can come down to the amino acid balance. It can come down to micronutrient intake. It can come down to the um, macronutrient balance because vegetarians and vegans tend to consume a lesser quantity of uh, protein and fat and a greater quantity of carbohydrates simply because every vegan source of protein has carbohydrates in it. So unless you mm. are doing protein concentrates like protein powders, um, you just see that shift in macronutrient ratios. There's all sorts of potential uh, reasons that you know we could extrapolate beyond just this one animal study. But um, those are those are my like initial inklings on that information. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Cool. Yeah, it was just like it, it was. It was one of those things where I was like, where I, I feel like my partner was like, it's got to be the pea protein, and I was like, well, uh, well, I mean, to, maybe, to, to, maybe. To that point, I you know, I would love to kind of come back to something that you just sort of 
that you sort of mentioned there, Tay, in your original question, and and just throw this to you, Lisa, because uh, in in our in our conversation on Termion, we got into the topic of male fertility, and and we were talking, uh, we went very deep into uh, the world of sperm, um, and one of the things that I that I was not aware of was the the like sperm quality guidelines um, and how they were developed and why that they do not necessarily represent what is optimal for conception that's a thing sperm yeah quality yeah guidelines? oh yeah it's fascinating so lisa cool. if you if you can like if you can blow uh blow our minds here and kind of walk us down that road of sperm quality and you know the the stats that were coming out from the world health organization and sort of how that relates to uh to conception um from from sort of a standpoint that doesn't actually kind of give you the the whole picture Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it's a whole thing. And it's it's really important. And I'll just start by sharing that, you know, with my background as a fertility awareness educator, and having used fertility awareness personally to avoid pregnancy. So in my, you know, whole 20s, I was using this method until my husband and I, you know, were ready to start trying to avoid pregnancy. And so what that means is I was avoiding sperm like the plague during my fertile window. Um, because obviously that's the only time when pregnancy can happen during that six day window. So then when I started working with clients, it was something very strange to see a couple who was having sex at the correct time, cycle after cycle after cycle, and nothing is happening. So at some point you have to ask yourself, what is going on? You know, uh, could this be related to his contribution? And so when we look at what the research says about it, uh, male infertility is the sole factor anywhere from 20 to 30 percent of the time when it comes to infertility cases and a contributing factor 50 up to 50 percent of the time. So half of and it makes sense, too, because, I mean, you know, tongue in cheek, like all my kids came out looking just like my husband. So obviously his contribution <laughs> is doing something we tend because we're the ones that have the physical evidence of pregnancy. Obviously, we we tend to take the brunt of it. We talk about this a lot, you know, in the book where. Uh, as women, when there's an infertility challenge or fertility challenge, we kind of assume the responsibility. And, you know, all my clients are taking all the supplements, cutting out every food they ever loved, doing all the stuff. And my joke is, and then the men are just sitting there drinking beer, right? And watching this happen. So we, <laughs> and of course, like that's, that's not true. I was on a strict restriction. But, but it was, but it was driven by Kyla though too. Like yeah. she would set out your pills on the counter and be like, make sure you take these. And you were like, oh, I just want to go drink beer with my friends. I'll tell you that was, yeah, what, what wasn't restricted yeah. was your bike usage, but we'll get to that my later. My bike right? usage was not, but my sauna <laughs> and hot tub usage was restricted. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, well, yes. there you go. And I mean, I'm just being ridiculous <laughs> to make a point. Obviously that's not what's happening. And I can attest that when I'm working with clients, like their partners are for the most part, quite ready to jump in. Mm -hmm. But as a culture, we're not really looking too deeply into no, the men. That's right. And I've that's even right. had clients who have had trouble conceiving for quite some time, had them struggle to get their doctors to even refer them so that they can have a sperm analysis. So I, I do think there's a, a pretty big issue. Mm. So in, in terms of the guidelines themselves, uh, you know, when I think to put it into context, 
there's a there's a big bigger issue happening with sperm quality. Many of us have heard about this decline in sperm quality over mm-hmm. the years. And so speaking of old studies, you know, when I look at some of the old studies, so, you know, I pulled up some of these studies from the 1940s. The average man in the 1940s had a sperm concentration of about 113 million per milliliter. So that's just average. And when we look at the, the the WHO guidelines, the World Health Organization guidelines for what is considered to be normal for sperm, um, they are looking at a sperm concentration of 15.15 million wow. per milliliter. So if your partner's sperm is over that, you're good to go. But keep in mind that that's nearly 10 times less than what the average man was showing, you know, in the 40s. Just a note on that. Is it not just insane how like across the health spectrum in general, we've just allowed the goalposts to move without addressing that the moving of the goalposts is the problem? (laughs) Well, and it's funny that you mentioned that because, you know, in the book, we have a table that it doesn't outline every single time the guidelines changed, but it actually shows you. So we've chose four of the changes uh, to show how much it has decreased uh, because the World Health uh, Organization guidelines have changed at least five times and each time they got progressively lower. Um, What's interesting as well is how they came about the guidelines. And I just want to preface by saying that when we're looking at these general public health guidelines, I do think that they're motivated by a bit of a different factor because when they're setting these guidelines, if someone is below them, then they we're, we're saying that there is medical intervention that's necessary. So I do think that they are somewhat motivated to not put them too mm. high so that they're mm. not um, causing a lot of false, you know, false positives or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but what the way that these guidelines were established when, when I looked at the initial study, they had a group of several thousand men and women, so couples, and they looked at which couples were able to successfully conceive in a one year period. So out of this was nearly 2000 couples who had conceived within a year of trying. Now they took the semen analysis of all these men and they looked at the lowest fifth percentile. So when we look at what the WHO has determined to be the guidelines out of all of the men who successfully conceived with their partner within a year of trying, the the cutoff re- represents the lower fifth percentile. So that means 95% wow. of the men in the study had better sperm. And that's what we're aiming for is for is for the lowest fifth percentile. Well, that's what so what happens in practice is that then if you and your partner are trying and then you get a semen analysis, if your sperm is over that, you're told mm. that you're fine, which is my right. like least favorite word. So mm. the the parameters then, I mentioned the concentration, 15 million per milliliter. So if you're over that, fine. Uh, motility, which means the sperm that are actually moving, 40%. So like, does that mean 60% aren't moving? And then the morphology, 4%. And um in the book, we kind of share a depiction of what that means. So morphology means like when they look at the sperm under a microscope, when you think of what a sperm would look like, you think of like a round head and a tail. So normal morphology means that that's what it looks like. And when you have abnormal morphology, there's a whole range of, of issues from whether it's the flat heads or squashed this or no head or conjoined or whatever. Um, and in their statistical guideline, they actually have images. Uh, so they dye the sperm, put them under a microscope, take the pictures, and you can see for yourself. So I often pull this up and show it to clients so they can see that when your partner has 4% morphology, it means out of every 100 sperm, 
four of them look like what we think of as sperm and 96 mm. have a wide range of morphological issues that actually look kind of alarming when you look at them. And so even if you don't know a whole lot about a whole lot, you can look at the picture and be like, oh, wow, that that doesn't seem right. Yeah. Um, and so when we compare the World Health Organization guidelines, we looked at a study that asked a different question. So this study looked at at what level, you know, if, if the sperm parameters are kind of low, you know, going down and down, at what point does this have a negative impact on fertility? And so what these researchers found was that optimal sperm uh, instead of the 15 million per milliliter was about 48 million the more the motility they found to be more optimal when it was in the range of 63% as opposed to 40. And then in terms of morphology, they found about 12%. Uh, So what this means is that, and what we present in the book is that what the world health organization provides, when your partner is told that you're fine, you know, many of those uh, couples who are not conceiving within, let's say a year or more, their parameters, even if they're above the level, are not necessarily optimal. Mm-hmm. So they might be in this kind of between subfertile area. And that would be the area of opportunity for a lot of couples. Because from a statistical standpoint, if you've been trying to conceive for a year or more, your partner's sperm is not likely to be optimal in all of those areas, in each of those parameters. And so, you know, if we're not talking about this, um, one of the, uh, so just to kind of wrap it up as well, when I was looking at some of these studies, when they changed the sperm parameters again, some of the researchers and clinicians were kind of putting their hands up and saying like, look, like when you change those parameters, all of a sudden now there's all of these men who previously would have been screened, but now they're not even being looked at. Mm-hmm. And so this is a huge, huge area uh, that we should be looking at for fertility. Well, mine was like when I, um, I have a couple of questions there, but, but just, um, when I, when I, maybe we were like five, six months into trying and, and obviously no success, my sisters or my, my wife's sister had had like extensive fertility issues. Um, and, and so I requested a sperm analysis, but it was a basic sperm analysis. Like it didn't look at, uh, it didn't look at, uh, morphology, um, or motility, and, and, and that so just came count. back. Yeah. Just count. I, be, I believe it wasn't a detailed sperm analysis. And so when I got it back, it was, and I can't remember what the count was now, but it was, you're fine. It was like no further analysis needed. And then when I got the detailed sperm analysis with the fertility clinic, it was like, Oh, there's some issues here. I believe my morphology was like 2% or something like that. Um, but, um, but the question I have is that in, when you see, when you see, um, sperm count rising, um, in general. So if like, if you, if you're exceeding, like if you're, if let's say you're at that, like 48 million, 50 million sperm count, are you, see, are you seeing rising proportions of, of better motility and morphology in those bigger sport, uh, larger sperm counts overall? Or, or are you, are you seeing this larger sperm count um, and you're getting similar percentages of, of, of proper morphology and motility, but because the sperm count number is larger in general than the proportion of, of that 4%, um, or 40% in motility and morphology. That's just such a greater number when you're dealing with 50 million sperm that it's better overall, or are those numbers increasing as well? You know, that's a really good question. Um, so what I've seen, this might not be the exact way that you were asking the question, but I'll share some thoughts with you. 
What I've seen is that when a man has really high numbers, the doctors are like, wonderful, great. And then they stop looking at the other stuff. So Mm -hmm. if you have a low morphology number, but your count, because keep in mind as well that men who have like really stellar numbers, like in the 97 percentile or whatever, you know, they're more likely to then conceive quicker. So they're not the ones getting the semen analysis and going to the fertility clinic. Mm -hmm. So I would say, keep in mind that at the fertility clinic, these doctors are seeing the men who are more likely to have an an issue. So, you know, my uh, perspective on that is that then when you have a man who does have really high numbers, because I've had clients whose partners have like a high count, but like a low morphology Mm -hmm. and the doctors see the high count and they're like, well, you know, that's can't be that, you know, Um, (laughs) but, but here's my take on it is that first of all, there's no man alive that's so healthy that he can't benefit from improving his diet or, Mm -hmm. you know, taking some targeted supplements because we wrote a whole book on how to, you know, spend all this time to support optimal conception and hormone Mm -hmm. health and egg quality. And that also applies to the men. So Mm -hmm. I feel like that's just as a general thought for everyone to kind of carry, but you know, the the one thing I'll say is that if a man has a really high count and really poor morphology, then that's a really great opportunity. Because if he if you if your count is really high and you can improve that morphology by, you know, you can double that or triple that, then that's millions and millions and millions mm. more sperm. Yeah. So, you know, at the end of the day, when you I think that when you're having trouble conceiving, you know, I wouldn't want to prioritize one number over the rest and assume that because the count is high, you mm-hmm. don't have an issue. Because, for example, you know, you mentioned your your morphology was 2%. Um, that means that two out of every hundred sperm are normally formed. And sometimes it takes a picture, you know, a picture is worth a thousand words. Um, <laughs> and so sometimes when you actually like see what it can look like, then um like, can I, can I show you, can I share an yeah. image with you? Can I yeah, do that on this pro- platform? You can ask another question. I'll I, share yeah. it with you and then I'd love I, to hear I your comments. I, I, I think there is a way for you to share your screen. Um, but if, if not, uh, you can exactly. send me, um, what you want to share and I can, I can pop it up there. I just wanted to I, throw that over to you, uh, Lily, in terms of like, when you do want to optimize for that, when you want to optimize for morphology and motility, what are some of the interventions for, <clears throat> for males that can, I can kind of take that into their own hands and, and, uh, and intervene. Well, first and foremost would be getting a handle on like whole body inflammation. And that often starts with cleaning up the diet, getting the like processed foods, a little more minimal alcohol, more minimal, um, poor quality fats. So fried foods are the biggest one, fried foods and snack foods down, and then um, building in more nutrient-dense foods. So there's a lot of specific nutrients that really improve um, testosterone production and uh, sperm quality. So vitamin A is a big one. Um, So your vitamin A-rich foods, interestingly, Lisa actually found some data on uh, organ meats, men who consume organ meats. Organ meats are the richest source of vitamin A, natural source Mm -hmm. of vitamin A. that actually improves semen parameters. Um, whole fat dairy products are another really good source of vitamin A. Oh, you have the image up. I don't know if you want me to keep going or do you want to pause to talk about the image? Um, I'll just keep going. So those are big ones. Um, Certain minerals are really vital to semen quality. So selenium and zinc are some big ones. Seafood is a really, uh, Mm -hmm. rich source of both of those minerals. 
Um, so that would be my top recommendation. Although you can also, uh, you know, have a, a men's multivitamin would be a good idea to kind of like as an insurance policy, make sure you're getting enough. Um, and some of the B vitamins, especially folate can play a, a really big role in improving semen quality. So your folate rich foods include liver legumes, like beans, lentils, um, and leafy greens, uh, in particular, spinach is very high in folate. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, one one kind of question that I have, and, and this might be a dumb question, but um, just talking about the nutrition aspect, uh, I couldn't help but think about, um, you know, pregnancy cravings. So like, you know, I, I, I've, I, I've not, I don't have a kid. And, um, but I know, like, I've spoken to friends and stuff that have been pregnant. And uh, I know that like, like pregnancy cravings are like, um, uh, not unlike, uh, uh, my experience in taking prednisone, uh, a a number of times when I've been like, not well. And when I'm on prednisone, I'll have these like totally off the wall cravings of like, oh, I need to eat like, you know, a stack of Belgian waffles covered in ice cream with like, you know, like doused in ketchup, like like just so specific and so weird. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then I, and then I eat that and I, and I put on a bunch of weight and, um, and that's, that's the process. Um, but I know that like, you know, some people when they're pregnant, they have these like really aggressive, very like unique cravings for food. Um, so I'm just kind of curious from like a nutritional standpoint, you know, obviously you want to be taking in the things that are the best for you and your baby. Um, but also you probably want to have a balance where you're not like, um, you know, not allowing yourself to have things that are just like comfort foods when, you know, when, when days are tough. Um, how do you, how do you sort of like, how do you navigate that with, you know, maybe food cravings or the, you know, like treating yourself to, to things like, you know, a pizza and some pop or something, uh, versus, versus like ensuring that you're taking in like the optimal nutrition and the things with like the high nutritional value. And off the back of that, like how much of that is, is fact and how much is like cultural myth of like, of cravings, of cravings and, or like just the culture of being like, you're eating for the bit, you're eating for two, like fucking shovel it in. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I actually, I looked at, at all of that when I was writing um, my last book, real food for pregnancy. And you're right. There is a cultural difference. When you look in some societies, there's not even an expectation that there's going to be cravings during pregnancy. It's not as normalized. And uh, the whole concept of eating for two, um, it's interpreted differently depending on on where you live. Um, And certainly the eating for two concept, although I don't disagree entirely, um, you know, you do need to eat slightly more food. It's true, but it's like three to 500 calories. It's not like double portions at every meal, (laughs) but you do need a lot more of certain micronutrients. So we do want to really be like increasing the quality of the diet and the amount of nutrient dense foods that are consumed and eating less of ironically, the things that maybe are some common cravings. So Mm. it is, um, it's a, it's a tricky one. So the cravings have, there's all sorts of theories on the cravings. Um, there's theories that maybe your body needs some specific nutrients. So it's like guiding you towards those cravings. Uh, A good example of that is like pickles and olives. Um, there is actually legitimately a higher need for sodium during pregnancy. You Mm. have so Mm -hmm. many more fluids on board your body needs more electrolytes to go along with it. Um, you know, if you're dehydrated and you went to the hospital, they don't give you uh, IV fluids that are just 
pure distilled water. They at the very least give you saline water. Um, Mm -hmm. So you do need more salt in pregnancy. That one is, you know, legitimate. There's a reason for that. There are some cravings that are indicative of an actual nutrient deficiency. So the craving for chewing ice specifically is associated Mm. with anemia, um, which can often be iron deficiency. And likewise, cravings for non-food items tend to be uh, a mineral deficiency of of some sort, such as calcium or iron or magnesium or something like that. But I think a lot of our cravings, um, they're not necessarily pregnancy specific, like caused by the pregnancy because your body is needing something specific. I think a lot of times it can come down to processed foods that have been literally engineered by the food industry to be craveable. And they trigger all those dopamine receptors. So if you're having a tough day or it's emotional or you, you know, miss your mom or something, you might have cravings for the foods that you associate with, a, you know, positive brain space or the mac and cheese your mom used to make or, you know, something that'll just kind of like give you that dopamine surge, that dopamine hit, but we're calling it a pregnancy craving. Um, Mm -hmm. That can most certainly happen. And I I look at cravings as like kind of an invitation to get curious about what could be going on. Like, is there a legitimate nutrient need here? Like sometimes I'll have um, clients who have been long-term vegetarians and they like really want a burger. Like, oh my God, I have to have a burger and I want a burger for lunch every single day for weeks on end. And it turns out they're really anemic and they probably needed the iron and the other micronutrients in there. Mm. And then other times you have the person who's craving, you know, flaming hot Cheetos. And uh, that's something Mm. they enjoyed when they were like a teenager. And (laughs) I remember good times with their friends. And I think they're just kind of going for that um, dopamine hit. And, you know, it's not the worst thing in the world to occasionally give in to a craving. I think we can also like if something is really, you know, there's nothing redeeming about that particular food. I will say like early in pregnancy, I had a craving for um, sour gummy worms. And mm. I remember like going to the store and like looking at the package of sour gummy worms, you know, your mouth is like watering because you really want it. And I'm like, look over on the back. It's not even the sugar that was like, oh, I can't do sugar. It was like all the food dyes where I'm like, that just can't be good for the baby. Mm -hmm. Like, can I find something else that'll like hit that same thing? And um, dried tart cherries actually did it. It's like I wanted the sweet and sour that was like really helpful for my nausea for whatever reason. So dried tart cherries worked great. And I, I could just like find something that would provide the same flavors um, without tons of, you know, red dye number 40, which I knew was not going to be doing my body (laughs) any favors. So, you know, I feel like you have to make the best of it. Sometimes the Mm. answer is to give in to the cravings and other times the answer is to try to find something equivalent, but slightly healthier. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Um, I, I, I know we're getting a little bit close to time here, but I wanted to, uh, quickly come back to something that you were talking about, Lisa, with, with the, um, alarming um statistics around the the sperm rates dropping and and i think something that we didn't touch on is is like what the what factors might be influencing those numbers to be so significantly low relative to what they were you know 80 years ago 
do we know what some of the factors are that could be causing those numbers to drop so heavily? Look at me, Brian. I'm a perfect example right now. You can see it right here laptop in real time. <laughs> this laptop heating up my balls as right we uh, as we continue this conversation. <laughs> okay, so other than the laptop on the, on your nuts, like what are some of the things that they suspect might be influencing that? I think there are a number of potential factors. I don't know that we can definitively say it's definitely this and definitely that. But I think generally speaking, um, we can look at diet quality. I'm sure Lily can speak to this even more so. But just the increase, the incredible increase in how much processed food that we consume as a culture. And when we change from eating whole foods and ancestral foods to some of those processed foods, we're really sacrificing also the, the micronutrient density of those foods. So if you look at what traditional cultures would eat, and this is something that we talk about extensively in the book, I mean, they were eating organ meats, they were eating just specific foods that were much more nutrient dense than Cheetos. So I think that generally we can we can look at that as part of it. I don't have the stat on this, but I read somewhere how many thousands of you know chemicals are released into our atmosphere and into wow. our world every single year. So there's a lot of chemicals that are estrogenic in nature, meaning that the chemical structure is similar enough to estrogen that it can trigger a similar response in the body, sometimes even a stronger response, mm. given that it's a chemical and it's not responding in a way that a natural hormone would. And men need testosterone to make sperm. There is a direct correlation between your testosterone levels and your sperm production. Mm. And so when you are being exposed, I mean, we can think about like the feminized fish in the oceans being exposed to all the chemicals and all that kind of stuff. So what is it doing to men when we are exposed? They're everywhere. You know, if you use aftershave, if you if you have the, the scented plugins in your house, if you use, you know, all the things that we use for cleaning and and, and cooking and, um, you know, laundry, detergent, like all the things it's everywhere. You're being bombarded by estrogen all the time. And so I would imagine that this is something that's very, very different to the average man in the 1940s. Um, we could look at sedentary lifestyles and the increase in metabolic conditions where, you know, the average man in the 40s was probably, you know, th there was a whole lot less obesity, if any, um, back then. So there's a lot of different factors that that I would say certainly contribute to this issue. Uh, that probably is the tip of the iceberg, Lily. I'm not sure if you want to jump in with any others. I think those are some of the major ones. Um, I think the to just go a little more on the metabolic health thing and the diet quality, you know, in America, half of adults have either diabetes or prediabetes, and most of them are undiagnosed. Blood sugar has a direct negative impact on both sperm quality and egg quality and conception rates. Um, even when those blood sugar levels are below the diagnostic threshold for prediabetes. And then on the food quality component, which directly ties into the diabetes component, um, They've looked at what percentage of the American diet is coming from ultra processed foods. These are foods mm -hmm. that have like really lengthy ingredient lists typically, and they're mainly made up of ingredients that are so far removed from the original ingredient that they're unrecognizable from where they came from. So it's refined sugars, um, corn syrup, uh, white flour, 
vegetable oils, seed oils, and then the flavorings, colorings, preservatives, and all the other stuff that make up these products. So typical like candy, soda, um, you know, most of the processed breakfast cereals, certainly the ones that are brightly colored, those would fall into the ultra processed food category. And 60% of the average American's calories are coming in from ultra processed food. 60%. Like the, wow. <laughs> more than That's half even, of our diet is ultra processed foods. Those didn't even, even exist in the me. 40s. Yeah. yeah, we we had um, uh, Chris Van Tullican on the podcast to talk about his book, Ultra Processed People. And, mm-hmm. and it was like wild. Yeah. hearing some of the statistics around yeah. processed foods and I mean, processed like, food consumption it's it's fucking crazy it's like yeah. a, it's a it's a totally it's a, it is its own conversation we had our own we had an yeah. we had it <laughs> we had its own conversation um and but, but it, it's like it's so wild how even as a person who like i take care of my health in a fairly adequate way in almost every dimension and that part of making sure like the amount of work that goes into making sure that what you're getting is not ultra processed or going down that lane of like all with um all the refined sugars and everything that things that you're trying to to be aware of not being in your food that is that it's crazy how we've made it to become its own little like side hustle Ooh. to figure out oh, like, yeah. the shit that you're putting in your body isn't going to ruin you. <laughs> Not to mention the costs associated with trying to eat clean and natural mm. foods. Oh, like, yeah. like some people just don't have the just choice, especially yeah. in this like totally. you know, the state of the economy. And, mm-hmm. and like when you can go and buy a, a box of craft dinner for $3 that can feed you for you know a handful of meals, like it's just sometimes the easier and mm-hmm. cheaper option. But I think that people don't fully appreciate um, the impact that that is having on their health when they make decisions mm-hmm. like that, even if they're forced to. Yeah. For anyone curious about that conversation, ultra processed people, uh, that episode was uh, June 7th of 2023, where we spoke to Dr. Chris Van Tolkien about his book. Um, guys, I mean, you know, this is this is just such a I love these types of conversations. Um, you know, the two of you are just a wealth of knowledge and it's, it's so fun to be able to kind of dive in and just even just scratch the surface. Um, I know that there is so much, uh, behind the, uh, behind the pages of real food for, uh, for pregnancy. Um, I need to go uh, read this book right now. Um, rather, um, real food for fertility. Um, and, uh, and the book is, uh, the book's available as, uh, as we speak. So today, um, uh, February 14th, it is available now. Um, but, uh, how can, how can people, I mean, a, how can people find the book B, how can people find you guys and the work that you do? Uh, please just, uh, plug away. Well, you can head over to realfoodforfertility.com for, you know, details about the book, for more information about Lily and I, um, if you want to download the first chapter for free, our book is available on Amazon. And so you can head over there and, and you'll see, our book in the paperback and ebook formats. And um, we will eventually have an audiobook, but it's something that we wanted to do um, ourselves and together. So that will be, we'll be doing that together later in the year. And um, Lily and I, you can find us on Instagram. I'm at uh, Fertility Friday and you're, well, I'll let you share where you are. Um, and then for anybody who is really interested in diving into the rabbit hole of Fertility awareness, cycle charting, menstrual cycle health. I have my podcast, Fertility Friday. We're in the 10th year, which is wild, over awesome. 500 episodes. So you can just search Fertility Friday in your favorite podcast player and you'll find me. 
Yep. And likewise, you know, on the main books website, it'll link out to everything really, but you can also find me at lilynicholsrdn.com. Um, I'm not a podcaster. I'm more of a prolific writer. So I have a very long, uh, like the archive of detailed articles, it links out to my two other books and I'm most active on social media on Instagram and my handle's the same as my website. So it's Lily Nichols RDN. Thank you guys so much for coming together uh, and finding time in your schedules to align to make this happen. I'm just really, really grateful to be able to have conversations like this with people like yourselves because, um, you know, we are just deeply, deeply curious about uh, about so many different things, but especially this thing, since Daddy Tay here is bringing another uh, sweet, sweet human into this world, and so it's uh, it's good, it's good so prep soon. for for us, you know, me and Bri. Who knows? Maybe in the next five years, we're gonna have to start thinking about less laptops on the lap and and start thinking about it now. You start. know, our macros and our micros. I yeah. mean, yeah, we no, probably have to no. think about um, getting up. Don't think about it then. Think about it now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Have... That's what this whole conversation is about. We might have to think about getting a, a little play place. Inside our office. That's yeah, yeah. Just a little, just a little, uh, little yeah. pen for the rugrats. Right? <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much. This has been a real treat, and uh, and we really appreciate uh, you taking your time. Thank Thanks you so much for having us. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Sickboy. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.